You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Today we'll be reading from from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 1 through 9, and that is found on page 623 in the Bibles found in the pews. If you do not have a Bible, please do take one as our gift to you. Now hear the word of the Lord. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind. Take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All rise for the reading of the gospel. This morning's reading is from Mark 13, verses 24 to 27, found on page 850 in your Pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things, till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands a doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Once again, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome. Welcome to Redeemer. We're glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. Very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, today is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. It's the beginning of a new church liturgical year, which means something for some of you and nothing to many of you. Um, But here's what you need to know. Uh, Theologian and, and priest Fleming Rutledge writes, the church lives in Advent. That is to say, the church lives between two Advents. Jesus Christ has come. That's one. Jesus Christ will come. That's the other. We do not know the day or the hour, and then she goes on to write, if you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you understand the Christian life. Tension. Tension is that straining tightness that exists between two points, right? A rope or a cable stretched between two points. Tension is necessary to hold something up. Like a bridge is only held up by tension. If the tension lets go, what happens to the bridge? It collapses, right? Without the tension of two advents, the church collapses. The church exists on one hand because Jesus has come, incarnate as a human child, raised in a middle-class Jewish family under Roman oppression, itinerant rabbi for three years, executed as an enemy of the state, miraculously raised from the dead and ascended into the spiritual realm. The church exists because Jesus has come. But that's not enough. The church exists because Jesus will come again. The world as we know it will end. Justice will roll down like waters. The world will be reborn. And new creation, peace, the shalom of God, will reign forever and ever. The church exists because Jesus will come again. Tension. Yeah? Lose either pole and the bridge collapses. And so to live as a Christian, therefore, is to live in the tension between two advents, which is to say to live right in the middle of the story to recognize that your life is bound up in the story, that the Christian story is not merely a list of events in a book that you believe are true or that you're supposed to believe are true, but rather 
a story that is your history and your future. That's Advent. As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in 1991, the cinematic industry peaked, and the greatest movie of all time was released into the world. And I'm, of course, talking about Hook with Robin Williams as Peter Pan, Dame Maggie Smith as Granny Wendy, Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell, Dustin Hoffman as Captain Hook, and Glenn Close as a random pirate on the ship. It's an amazing... You're not going to find a better lineup, okay? In the rising action of the first third of the movie, Peter Pan's kids are kidnapped by Hook and they're carried off to Neverland. And the problem is that Peter is now a grown-up in the worst sense of the word, okay? Uh, He's a lawyer who no longer... Nothing against lawyers. Some of you are lawyers. I'm sure you're great. Uh, Peter is a lawyer who no longer believes in fairy tales. And so in one brilliant scene, Granny Wendy calls him to her bedside and she presses an old book into his hands. It's the original copy of J.M. Barrie's fairy tale, Peter Pan. And Wendy peers up into his eyes and she kind of urges him, Peter, the stories are true. And of course, he doesn't believe her. She's ridiculous. But then he's carried off into Neverland and he finds out, like to his dismay, that the stories are actually true and he reluctantly believes. But that's not enough. Hook has challenged him to a duel and the victor gets to keep the kids. And so Peter is faced with the reality that something is required of him. He has a role to play. He's not just being asked to believe the stories, he's being asked to participate in the story. The character in the story is right there in front of him. It's actually his shadow. And all he has to do is step into it and then participate in the adventure. And the whole movie hinges on his internal reluctance, reluctant to believe and then reluctant to participate. And when he finally has this epiphany moment and embraces his identity, then the viewer knows you've turned a corner in the story and he's begun to inhabit the story and play along. And for many of us, these are, I would wager, the three stages of engagement with the biblical story as it comes to us in the season of Advent. Some of us do not believe. We are adults. We are grown-ups. We don't believe in fairy tales about messiahs who come back from the dead. You might like the liturgy and the music and the choreography of a church service. Maybe that's kind of part of why you're here. It's beautiful. You like it. But you find the original premise to be ridiculous. Yeah? That's stage one. Stage two, others of you have reached this point where somebody cared about you very much, and they challenged you, and they told you, the stories are true. And you explored and you studied and you researched and you contemplated and you found, perhaps to your surprise, maybe even to your dismay, that you believe. You believe the stories are true. And a lot of people stop right there. A lot of Christians stop right there. Maybe stop there for years or maybe even decades. And I wonder how many of us have engaged at that third level not only believing that the stories are true, but realizing that we are characters in the story, that there's a great adventure to be had, there's a battle to fight, lost souls to seek, a terrible enemy, but a glorious ending. That's the invitation of Advent, to not just believe the story, but to inhabit the story and to live in the tension of the story. We're going to explore the gospel lesson this morning, Mark chapter 13, and it's full of Advent tension, and it's full of invitation. 
to come and live in that tension, which is to say, inhabit the story, participate in it. And we're going to explore this by just asking a few questions of the text. Three different questions. Question number one, what's coming? Question number two, what time is it? And question number three, what should you do? What's coming, what time is it, and what should you do? First question, what's coming? We need to pan the camera out and give a little bit of context. In the beginning of Mark chapter 13, which we did not read, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them something very disturbing. He tells them that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. This is not a small thing to say to a first century Jew in Jerusalem. This is a big deal. It's very, it's like scandalous and offensive and disturbing, all rolled up into one ball of yarn. And so Peter, James, and Andrew, four of the disciples, come to Jesus privately, and they kind of lean in and say what any of us would say, which is, Jesus, what are you talking about? Please explain yourself. And I love the humanity of this because I often don't know what Jesus is talking about. And it's encouraging to me that the disciples who were with him 24-7 also did not know what he was talking about some of the time, right? There's some comfort there. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the moment when foreign armies will invade Jerusalem and take over the temple. And with historical hindsight from our vantage point in history, we know that this actually happened between AD 66 and AD 70. The Jewish historian Josephus records the terrible tale of the siege of Jerusalem. And it's a gruesome tale. People starved, parents ate their own children to stay alive, infighting between the people of God broke out, and more Jews were killed by other Jews than by the invading Romans. And during this terrible time, Jesus warns ahead of time, and the historian Josephus confirms later, Many would-be political messiahs rose up during this time and offered rescue, offered to lead God's people to victory, and they all failed. None of them could deliver on the promise. And the climax of that terrible time came in AD 70 when the Roman emperor Vespasian was crowned and his adopted son Titus entered Jerusalem, burned the temple, and crucified thousands of Jews. What kind of language would you need to use to describe that kind of horror? You would need cosmic, end-of-the-world kind of language to describe something that bad. Which is why in verses 24 through 27, Jesus starts to use cosmic, end-of-the-world kind of language. Sun and moon darkened, stars falling, powers shaken. The world, as the first century Jews had known it, was going to end. And then Jesus brings in the kicker. He quotes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, it's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, And he says this sentence that every Jewish person would have known and memorized by heart. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and glory. These are familiar words for a first century Jew. And they are not words that describe somebody coming to earth. They are words that describe somebody going to God. It's about triumph and vindication. And in this first century context, for Jesus to quote that, is a way of him saying this will be the triumph and vindication of everything that he has come to say and to do. It will be the proof of who he is. What else is going to happen during this time? Jesus says the gathering of God's chosen people from the ends of the earth will happen. In other words, there's an establishment of a mission that, unlike Jesus' own during his earthly life, will now reach out to the Gentile world and gather in all the lost people who are chosen by God. These are Jesus' prophecies. Jesus is the last prophet And they were fulfilled in real space and in real time 35 to 40 years later. Okay, that's what's coming. What time is it? 
Jesus uses a word picture, a metaphor. Jesus is big on metaphors. He describes a fig tree that transitions from winter to spring. The leaves come out. If you know your seasons and you're paying attention, you can tell that summer is right around the corner. And he says, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is coming soon. The time is late. You can imagine the disciples' sense of dread as Jesus says these things to him. This is not sounding like good news. It would be like an astronomer saying that a life-ending meteor is headed for Earth. And if the interviewer asks the scientist, well, how long do we have? And the scientist says, it's going to happen in our lifetime. Just imagine the sense of dread that would settle upon anybody listening to that interview. You might wonder, why doesn't Jesus tell the disciples exactly when all of this is going to happen? That would be really helpful and useful information, right? Why is Jesus being like specific and yet also vague at the same time? It's a great mystery here. Jesus doesn't know. Verse, 30, verse 32. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus is telling the disciples everything that he knows. He doesn't know when the terrible war and judgment will happen. He only knows that it's coming and that it's close. What time is it? It's late. Question number three, what should you do? In light of this, Jesus' following command to the disciples makes a lot of sense. Since he knows what's coming, and since he knows the hour is late, but he doesn't know when exactly this is going to happen, he warns the disciples to stay late, to stay awake, to stay on high alert. Jesus uses another metaphorical image. Jesus is big on metaphors. He talks about a master who goes away on a journey and leaves servants in charge with work to do. And the doorkeeper is charged to stay awake and to look for the master's return. And Jesus told actually a number of parables that kind of fit this narrative arc. In all of these stories that Jesus is telling, when the master returns, accounts must be given of how his resources were used while he was away. And the faithful are rewarded and the unfaithful are punished. And so all servants are charged to prepare for the return of the master. Worst case scenario, if you're a servant, the master comes back and you're not ready. You were kind of messing around a little bit and you weren't ready for his return or you were sleeping. And so Jesus uses this metaphor to say to his disciples and to everyone, verse 37, that last little part of this conversation, he says, what I say to you, I say to all, it's a pretty comprehensive all, stay awake. So let's summarize. What is coming? Judgment, the end of the world as you know it, for the disciples. What time is it? The hour is late, later than you think. What should you do? Stay awake, keep watch, be on high alert. Now, all of this was not figurative for the disciples. None of the disciples would have listened to Jesus and thought, wow, that's just so spiritually insightful. No, he's talking about real events happening in the world. And so judgment did come. Jerusalem was invaded. The temple was burned. Jews were massacred. And the world as they knew it ended. Jesus warned his disciples that this would happen in their lifetime, and it did. They needed to live on high alert for approximately 35 to 40 years, and then it all happened. And that was then almost 2,000 years ago now. And we live now. This is Advent. We're reading the story together, and we are considering what it means for us to inhabit the story. And there are, two there are two errors for us to avoid as we're thinking about this together. Here they are. Error number one is to read this text in the Bible and to think, like the entitled 21st century people that we are, this is only about us. The Bible was written for me right? 
There's no historical fulfillment. It's just about the end of the world for us. We need to read it spiritually for today. And any talk of history and this already happening is a distraction. And the church won't be able to live with a sense of urgency that she needs if we actually know our history and talk about our history. So let's just read it like it's written to us today. Error number one. Error number two. This text is not for us at all. This was already fulfilled in AD 70. We may read it the way we read history and learn historical lessons and the wisdom of kind of proverbially being ready. And my application point from this is to like not wait to the last minute to wrap Christmas presents because we need to quote, be ready, right? But it doesn't really have much to do with us today. Both errors do injustice to the story. If you think it's only about you, you disregard the whole story of church history that precedes you. This wasn't originally written for you. It is for you, but it wasn't originally written for you. And you ignore the history of the world and the church if you think it's just for you. On the other hand, if you think it has nothing to do with you, you disregard the reality that the biblical story, listen if you can, has the tendency to recapitulate itself over and over again. What I mean is what happens once in one way tends to happen again in another way. The biblical story is not a straight line. It's not a circle either. The biblical story moves, it makes progress, but then it doubles back on itself. And then it makes a little more progress, and then it doubles back on itself. And it kind of loops back over and over again. In other words, if you make your way through the Bible, reading your way through, what you'll notice is you keep hitting these moments where you'll read something and you'll go, now wait a minute, that reminds me of something that just happened before. You'll read the creation story in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then you'll read later, much later, thousands of years later, about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And you'll realize that here you've got a woman in a garden and she's distraught and God is walking in the cool of the day and comes calling for her. And then over here, you've got a woman in a garden and she's distraught and the risen Lord comes calling to her. Mary, where are you? And you realize, wait a minute, the story has doubled back on itself. A theme has been repeated here. Or you'll read about the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3 and this rebellion against the authority of God. And then just moments later, for us, but hundreds of years later in the actual story, you'll read about the Tower of Babel and you go, whoa, this is the same rebellion but on larger scale, right? And you realize, oh, the story is doubling back on itself over and over again. To read the story rightly is to see yourself in it. And though the historical events are real, they happened in space and time, they are happening again here and now in our time. And this might, listen, this might seem complex and unnecessarily complicated. And earlier this week, I was sorely tempted to dumb this down in the sermon to make it simpler so you wouldn't have to think so hard about it. But that would be to do a great injustice to the scriptures. And so what is required of us reading the Bible today, is a kind of double reading. To read the text in its historical context and to marvel at the prophetic words of Jesus. They came true. But then we must also recognize that elsewhere in the scriptures, the same message is spoken to us today. And there, we see this in the Apostle Paul, we see this in the Apostle Peter, in in the book of Revelation written by John, that Christ will return for a final judgment And that the judgment that happened in 70 AD was just a recapitulation of the judgment that happened in the days of Noah. 
and it's a foreshadowing of the judgment that will ultimately come one day when Christ returns. And the story is doubling back on itself. And so, as his followers today, we must cultivate this mindful alertness, a posture of readiness, so that we might not be found unprepared, lethargic, and asleep when our time actually arrives. And so we have to receive this text as both historically fulfilled and also prophetically timely for us here today, right now. So what are those three questions? What is coming? What time is it? What should I do? What is coming? The second advent. We've had a first advent, but the second advent is coming. The crucified and risen king coming to judge the world and also to renew the world, which inspires both a sense of fear and also a sense of hope, right? The church is always looking forward to the second advent, leaning forward, leaning to meet the future. What time is it? The hour is later than you think. Our culture, society, and world sort of believes it's one time. And the church says, no, the clock's further ahead than you think. It's almost like the church and the world are living in different time zones. I had this kind of funny experience about a month and a half ago when I flew out to California to visit some relatives. And so I did what any of us do, which is you get on the plane, you put your phone in airplane mode or you turn it off completely. And, um, and then the plane landed and I did what all of us do, which is I got my phone out, I turned it back on. And for just a moment, my phone thought it was in Virginia. And then it realized it was in California, right? And, it, and the time changed. And all of a sudden, three hours were gone, Right? Like I watched the time change. That's what happens when you walk through those doors, off the street, into a place like a church in the season of Advent. And you go, wait a minute. Out there says it's one time. In here says it's a different time. Our clocks are different. It doesn't always feel this way, though. In fact, it can make the church feel pretty absurd. Um, This is one of those moments where the church feels so profoundly out of step in our current cultural moment. And all this talk of waiting and leaning to meet the future, to greet the coming king, the return of the king, to say that it's a different hour of the day than the rest of the world says, it can make the church feel a little bit crazy. You know what I mean? And so if I can direct your attention, if I can, to the front cover of your liturgy, let me point something out to you. We chose this, this is a, this is a picture that I think at first blush looks lovely. The colors are kind of cheerful and calm. There's a sweet, quaint little town. There's a a bay that leads to the ocean. There's some sailboats on the bay. It's lovely. But there's a figure standing on this little porch built on the roof of a house. And the title of the painting is Widow. And so what first greets you in this painting is the sweetness and the loveliness and the quaintness of it. But the longer you look at it, the sadder it gets. Now, this porch built on top of the house, is, there's actually a name for this piece of architecture. It's called a widow's walk. And I was first introduced to this as a child when my grandparents rented a house in the Outer Banks of North Carolina and our whole family, uncles, aunts, cousins, everybody, went and stayed in this house together. And on the top of this house was built a widow's walk, a little porch with a spiral staircase that went up to it. And, you know, at the time, we sort of used it as like a great place to you know, have an afternoon drink or something. Not as a kid, but that's what the grown-ups were doing. Um, 
And it just sort of seemed fun. But as I got older and I sort of thought about the name of this particular piece of architecture, I realized, oh, that's what it's for. If you are a woman and you are married and your husband has gone away to sea, either on a whaling vessel or on a merchant ship or to war, this is the porch that you go and you stand and you look out onto the ocean and you wait for your husband to return. And it's called a widow's walk because you might be waiting a very long time. He might never come back. In fact, he's probably never coming back. And so if you think about it, church buildings have become something of a widow's walk for the people of God. You go to church and it's the season of Advent and a pastor gets up and says, we're waiting for the return of Christ. And there's something in you that goes, are we? Is he really returning? We've been saying that for a very long time. Are we just waiting in vain? Is the church abandoned? Is the church really just a widow? Keeps telling herself she's the bride of Christ, but there's no groom. And then when we begin to despair in this, we become something of a sleepy church. We kind of do what anybody who's waited too long does. You move on, right? You move on, you do other things. Maybe you take a new lover. And the sleepy church that not only fails to stay awake but keep watch in the door and faithfully greet her beloved, we also become a church that by her life says to the world, there's no story, there's no tension, no adventure. Play Christmas music in August. Who cares, right? There's nothing to wait for. We're not waiting for anything, and neither should you. And so to us as followers of Jesus who tend to hit the snooze button as I did this morning and roll back over and go to sleep because there's no compelling reason to wake up, we have the gift of the first advent. The first advent speaks a word of both comfort and challenge to the sleepy Christian and the sleepy church that is tired of waiting. The first advent at Christmas says, oh, but he really did come. The wait was over. And the Messiah arrived unlooked for and largely unnoticed. And some were prepared, but most were not. And the first advent is the down payment, the promise, the guarantee that the second advent will be just as real. So if you're tired of waiting and you're beginning to get tired of standing on the widow's walk, tired of looking out over the sea, waiting for a husband that is never coming home, take heart, do not despair. There's a whole group of people, the people of God, who waited for a very long time, and their waiting was not in vain. And your waiting is not in vain either. So do not give yourself to another lover. Wait for your beloved to come home. And then I just want to end with a couple practices that will help us lean into this waiting. The first is, and those of you who know me and who know that I'm kind of a grumpy old man, even though I'm not quite that old yet, know that... uh, the first practice we might take up in this Advent season, and I say it to you every year, is keep the Advent season. Do not rush ahead towards Christmas. This will be difficult. It will make you annoying to your neighbors and to your family members who want Christmas to start now, who wanted Christmas to start yesterday, right? Keep the Advent season. If you cannot wait a few weeks for Christmas, how will you cultivate a life of waiting? For the Lord. There are practices that will help you keep the Advent season. One of them is an Advent wreath. Some of you are going to go to the Advent wreath workshop after the service. That's great. Others of you have been keeping an Advent wreath for years, and you will know that it's just a, it's a cultural artifact that can help focus your attention and remind you 
as you use it day in and day out, right there on your kitchen table, every meal, that you're not there yet. You're waiting. And that there is an arrival that is coming to you, but it's not here yet. And so the Advent wreath becomes this little tool that helps you hold the posture, the posture of waiting. Now, the spiritual discipline of waiting is actually something that Christians have practiced for thousands of years. And in our day and age, we have to think creatively, how do we cultivate this practice of waiting? And it might, you might do it in all kinds of ways. You might do it as you're waiting in line in the grocery store to check out, and everyone around you will do what? They'll pull out their phone, and they'll find a way to amuse themselves while they are waiting. And one thing that you might do is keep your phone in your pocket and just stare straight ahead like a psychopath, just, <laughs> just waiting and doing nothing except waiting. You might do it at a stoplight where everybody else pulls out their phone or adjusts the radio or whatever, something to pass the unbearable 45 seconds while you wait for the light to turn from red to green, and you might just wait. Just wait. Something else you might do is you might, every Sunday of the season of Advent, come to the table and receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. And you might do this as an act of waiting. You wait in your seat, in the pew, and then you wait in line. And then there's this moment where you're in front of me or one of the other uh, staff or ministers here, and you're holding your hands in this posture of reception. You're ready to receive what you've been waiting for, and someone will take the bread and dip it in the wine and place it in your hands. And in that moment, you will receive that for which you have waited. And you'll remember in that moment, oh yes, the people of God are people who wait, and they're also people who receive. And as you practice this week over week, it will remind you in bodily form that your whole life is waiting and that you will indeed receive. You don't wait in vain. Friends, as we take these up, as we practice the, the season of Advent together, I just want to remind you that the, the church calendar was developed over the years throughout the history of the church for the purposes of gospel formation, meaning the church calendar is something that presses the gospel into you as you practice it and as experience it. Um, you just think about all the different ways the church calendar does this. In Christmas, the church calendar presses into you that all of life is received as a gift. Indeed, the Lord himself is to be received as a gift. And so the Christmas season cultivates gratitude in you, yes? And then you get to Epiphany. And you practice and you contemplate together with the church the revealing of the identity of Jesus. Oh, there you are, Lord. And you begin to wonder, where am I missing God in my life right now? Where might I need the epiphany, the unveiling, the taking the wool off my eyes to happen in my life right now, right? And the season of epiphany presses that into you. Then you get to Lent. And in Lent, you journey with Jesus and with the people of God through the wilderness. And you're reminded, oh, that's why my life is so hard. I'm in the wilderness. And you journey through Lent and you go, okay, I'm going to keep pace with Jesus here in this wilderness life that I'm called to live. And then you get to Easter and it's pure joy. It's resurrection. It's new life. It's hope. And you realize, oh, we're an Easter people. And we live in the hope of the resurrection. And this is why we can be joyful in all times, in all circumstances, because of the resurrection. Then you get to Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is given to the church and you know, oh, I'm not alone. God is with me all the time, coming to dwell within me. We're a Pentecost people, living life in the spirit. Then you get to ordinary time, which is like half the year. 
and you're reminded that, you know what, as incredible as this story is, so much of life actually feels pretty ordinary, pretty not exciting. Most of life is actually pretty boring. Church is even boring. And every kid in the room is like, amen, church is boring, right? (laughs) And, And you realize, oh, there's actually a call to be faithful even in the boring, mundane, ordinary moments. But here's Advent. Advent says to you, you are in the story. You're actually in the timeline. And there's not just a story to be believed. There's a story to inhabit. You actually get to live in the middle of this. And so hear me if you can. If you get all the other parts of the church calendar, which is like most of the Christian life, but you don't get Advent, sadly, you've missed the whole thing. You've missed the fact that this is not just a story to be believed. It's a story to be practiced and lived. On the other hand, if you get Advent, you get everything else. Because if you get Advent, you realize you're in the middle of the story. And then story becomes not just something to believe, but something to practice. You become a practitioner of the story. You inhabit it. You live it. And you get everything else thrown in. The Christian life is an Advent life. If you get Advent, you get everything else. The stories are true. You're in the story. There's a role for you to play. And as you practice Advent, you practice the story. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the first Advent, your first coming to us. Would you give us the grace and the patience and the alertness and the mindfulness and the waiting to endure and stay awake until your second Advent? In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.